Morning. How's everybody doing? You sure? All right. Hey, I was uh, I was looking for my Bible this morning, and I uh, I couldn't find it in my office, and I went out to the car, and I just kind of peeked in the back window, and I, I thought I saw it there, and uh, sure enough, I got to church, and I looked back to grab it, and uh, this is what I found. I don't know if you can see the size of this Bible, but this is the smallest Bible known to man. And this is, the, this is like my hospital Bible, you know what I mean? This is the Bible I try to stick in a pocket. So I, it's, it's going to be a little hard for me to read this Bible. So I, I'm going I'm to use a pew Bible today. Is that okay with you? All right. If you have a pew Bible, go ahead and turn it to Colossians. Hopefully you've got your own Bible because it's better to have your own. But uh, turn over to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be today, Colossians chapter 3. We've been going through the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. And we are now in chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. As you're turning there, uh, many of you own, have dogs at home. How many of you have a dog at home? Raise your hand. All right, a few of you, not too many. How, how many of you have ever owned a dog? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot more. Good. How do you train a dog? No. How do, I mean, do, do, you, do you train a dog to go to the bathroom outside by reasoning with them? No. Do you train a dog by having long, heartfelt discussions that you desire them not to go potty on the rug, but rather out in the grass? Do you have long, winding, reasoning conversations with them? No. It, it, how do you train a dog? Treats, okay, good, right? Yeah, yeah. One word commands, right? One word commands. I, I tell Daphne, and Daphne is kind of a dog. She's like an excuse for a dog, but not really a dog. Maybe a rat. I don't know. But my dog, when I was training her, yeah, treats, good. And then it, potty, potty, go potty, go potty. And I'm pointing outside, go potty, go potty, go potty. She's sitting there kind of looking at me. Finally, after infinitesimal one-word commands, potty, potty, go potty. She finally figured it out. It didn't actually take her too long to figure it out. Simple one-word commands, go potty, sit, stand up, go potty. She got it. Well, you know what? Here's the, here's the connection. Sometimes we're a little slow. Sometimes we're like, you know, those little puppies that don't know what to do. And sometimes we need it simple. We need it straight. We need it to the point. And Paul gives that to us here in Colossians 3. He gives us one word commands in this section of Colossians. One word commands like off. On, under, up, put off the old man, he told us, as we learned last week. Put on the new man, he'll tell us in this study. Come under proper authority, we'll learn about next week. And then wise up and lift up prayer, we'll learn in our final study of this section of Colossians. One word commands that is a hallmark of this portion of the letter to the church in Colossae. I'd ask you to stand with me now as we look at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read 12 to 17 today. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church 
to a group of Christians in a town of Colossae. He says this in verse 12. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You may be seated. Verses 12 to 17 of Colossians 3 tell us to put something on. Notice the words put on in verse 12. Therefore, put on. And he goes on to list a whole host of virtues. And in verse 14, he says, But above all these things, put on. Clothe yourself with love. On. Put on the new man. The good virtues we're told to put on in these verses are in stark contrast to the verses that just preceded it in verses 5 to 11, where Paul tells us to put off other evil characteristics. In fact, Paul didn't just say put off those evil vices. He said in our study last week, he said put them to death. Kill them. Kill the sinful tendencies within you. And Paul's strong language in chapter 3, verse 5, where he said put to death. Chapter 3, verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That strong language was given for a reason. It's because Paul knew just how resilient sin can be. He knew how long sin's lifespan can be as we continue to give in to its temptation. And Paul never wanted his readers, though, he never wanted his readers, despite the resiliency of sin, despite the fact that it can last a lifetime as we give in to its temptation, he never wanted his readers to give up hope in combating sin, in combating evil. He did not want to give believers the impression that sin was completely indestructible. Instead, he wanted us to know that it could be beat. And in fact, it was beaten at the cross of Jesus Christ. It can be beaten, and it was already beaten in the cross of Christ. It can be killed in us, and it was killed in us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to know that while on the one hand, sin is something we will always battle throughout our life, on the other hand, sin is something that we've already died to and that we've already put off 
by our faith in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 9 and 10. I want to go back just a couple verses from where we're at in verse 12. Look at verse 9 and 10 of Colossians 3. He writes, And don't lie to one another, since you've put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Paul says, you have put off. That's past tense, by the way. You have put off. It's been done. You've already done it. Though you might not even be aware of it. The words, you have put off, the the verb put off, is apekduomai in Greek. It means to disarm. It was the same word used in Colossians 2.15. When Paul said that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has disarmed evil principalities and powers. Jesus, by what he did on the cross, disarmed evil. He disarmed sin. He disarmed Satan and his minions. He disarmed the power of sin. And that same word that is used of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 15 of Colossians, is the same word used of you and me in Colossians 3, 9. You have put off the old man with his deeds. You have disarmed sin in your body. You say, well, how have I disarmed sin? By trusting Christ. How, how have I... How have I discarded sin from my life, Neil? How have I disarmed evil in me? By your faith in Jesus Christ, through which you've now received God's Spirit. You've been washed clean. Death no longer is your future. Sin is no longer your chief characteristic. You are a new person because of faith in Jesus. And that's precisely what Paul says in verse 10. Notice what he says in verse 10. He goes on to say, And you've put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You've not only disarmed sin by faith in Christ, you've put off the old man, past tense, you have done that in your state of being, but you've also put on the new man. By faith in Christ, I've put off the old man, I've disarmed sin, and I've put on the new man I've become a new person. These things have happened to me. Past tense. And you say, well, Paul, that's nice theology. Uh, it's, It's nice of you to say those things of me, but I don't feel that way. I don't feel like sin is totally disarmed in me. In fact, I'm I'm really struggling with sin right now. I don't feel so new anymore. In fact, I'm feeling like my old self again. And part of me, the, the, that part of me that was always struggling with temptation. So Paul, how can your theology make sense? I don't feel so new. And this is where Paul says something glorious. And it pertains to the rest of our study in verses 12 to 17. This is where he says something glorious. In verse 10 he says... You're new in God's sight 
And even when you don't feel very new, know this. You are constantly being renewed in knowledge according to the image of Christ who created you. You are constantly being renewed in knowledge according to the image of Christ who created you. The word renewed in verse 10, anakainao in Greek, it mean, it's a beautiful word. And the way Paul uses it here, it's fascinating. He uses it in the passive voice. He says you are being renewed. As if to say it's something that you don't do. It's something that God does to you. God does for you. It's in the passive voice. Someone else does the renewing. God does the renewing. He's renewing you each day. It's His work. He's renewing you. It's His doing. And so we can say on your outline there, if you want to fill out toward the bottom of the first page, we can definitively say that I am new and I am constantly being renewed. I am new in my nature because of my faith in Christ. I am a new person. But not only that, not only is that my state of being, but I'm constantly being renewed as I live out progressively this life. I'm new in my being and I'm always being renewed by God as I walk this life. That perpetual spiritual renewal that Paul promises God is doing in us You know, it works best when we're cooperating with God in it. But that renewal even takes place. Whether we're cooperating with God in the renewal process, in the sanctifying process, or whether we're out of sorts with God, whether we're out of harmony with Him, He's still renewing you. He's still renewing you in knowledge. He's still using His Spirit within us to transform us and to change us to convict us when we need it, to remind us of sin, to pick us up when we need it, to keep us going. Whether we're cooperating or not, He is renewing you because He loves you. Because by faith in Christ, you're one of His own now. And He doesn't stop renewing you because He wants you to be who He's already created you. He wants you to be in practice what He's already created you in your inner man, in your heart of hearts. He wants you to live out the kind of life that He's already made for you by forgiving you of your sins and by filling you with His Spirit. That means that God never gives up on you. He never does. What a privilege it is to have someone never, ever give up on you. What an honor it is that God would choose me, that God would choose you to devote so much of His energy and His attention. There are a few people that you could probably point to in your life who will never give up on you. No matter what you do, no matter how off track you get, you might have just a a small handful of people. Maybe you only know one. Maybe you don't have one at all who will never give up on you, but God would never give up on you. Paul says He will always renew you. He'll always be in the process of making you new, of reminding you of who you are, and of urging you and encouraging you 
to return to the man or woman that He wants you to be, that you are. And so we respond to that and we say, God, if, if, if you are never going to give up on me, what can I do in return? What can I do in return to the God who, who never gives up on me? As a, as a coach might tell a player, you can suit up. You can suit up for the game. Paul now is going to say, put on your uniform. Put on the right clothes. Because the game is now in process. And you need to put on the right uniform to play this game well. And so beginning in verse 12, he comes now to that one word command, on, put on all of these things. Here's the uniform that he wants you to wear. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint, against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Knowing that God has singled us out, He's chosen us, He's selected us to devote so much of His love and attention to renewing you, He won't give up on it. His attention is upon you and knowing that He's chosen you and selected you for such special and privileged attention. Paul now says what you and I can do for him in return. We can put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Put on. Clothe yourself. What, 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 what should we clothe ourselves with? Paul gives a long list. The first one, tender mercies. On the back of your outline there, tender mercies. It's fascinating. In Greek, the words are actually bowels of mercy. He says way down deep. In the bowels of your being, in the entrails of your being, he says, find that seed of compassion which God's Spirit is working in you. With everything in you, show mercy. Tender mercies. Show kindness. Show kindness to others. Be kind. Be considerate. Have attention for those around you, for their needs. Put on humility. Humility is interesting because uh, in first century Roman times, uh, in the first century pagan world, especially in Colossae, uh, humility was actually seen as a sign of weakness. In fact, if you read some of the uh, extant literature of of the, the pagans of that day, they would list humility not as a virtue, but as a vice. When they would call someone humble, they meant to say that that person was weak, weak-minded, that they could be easily uh, overcome. But Paul takes that same word that in the world of the Colossians would have been used as something undesirable, and he takes that word and he says, no, no, you be humble, like the humility that Christ showed. Paul says, Elsewhere in Philippians, to consider others uh, more important than yourself. You be humble. You be meek, Paul writes. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit 
the earth. The meek ones shall inherit the earth. You know, we look at the earth today, and it's certainly not the meek ones inheriting. Um, I, I look at uh, Venezuela, right? You know, and, and they just had their, uh, their dictator, uh, Hugo Chavez, who, who died of cancer. Um, and that's, that, that country now is, is uh, in a state of havoc. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And there are rising people on all sides that, that rise up and are vying for power. It's a country where the meek don't inherit. The strong inherit. The dictators inherit. The military might inherit. But the meek don't inherit. Jesus says in the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says the meek will inherit the earth. The strong on all sides, they'll keep fighting in this life. But it'll be the gentle ones who ultimately win. It'll be you who are gentle in spirit, kind, considerate, and humble, meek, who will gain a huge inheritance. And those who were strong in this life will look upon you one day and, and be baffled that you were the ones who inherited the kingdom of God. Long-suffering, patience, long-suffering, extended perseverance in the face of hardship. It's a beautiful word. Extended perseverance in the face of hardship. And bearing with one another, verse 13. Put on, clothe yourselves with this notion that you are to bear with one another. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. That, that bearing with one another. Read Romans 14 and 15. That's my, one of my, I think I've said it a thousand times, but it's one of my favorite portions in all of Scripture. I've preached on it a couple times here. Uh, Romans 14 and 15, Paul speaks of bearing with the weak, that the strong should bear with the weak. And uh, it's a beautiful picture of what the church can be when we understand what it means to bear with one another. That, mean, that literally does mean put up with one another. It means, you know what, you're not going to always get along. There might be differences of opinion. Uh, there's certainly going to be times where we have differences and, and arguments and within the church, within the family. But Paul says, Bear with one another. Put up with one another. Show grace. Show patience. Long-suffering. And forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, we are to forgive them. We generally think of forgiveness as something that uh, must be asked for. Um, in fact, Casey and I, you know... Uh, uh, unknowingly we, we we've been we've been kind of doing this with our kids uh when, when when bennett you know smacks mallory actually it's usually the other way around when mallory smacks bennett uh we take mallory up to, to bennett and we say you know mallory um the the onus is on her we say mallory you hit bennett um please say you're sorry to him and you know mean it from your heart say you're sorry and ask him for forgiveness. And she says, I'm sorry. You know, will you forgive me? And then Bennett responds, and we've, you know, we're playing the, the forgiveness game there, right? It's a good game to play. 
It's important to teach this to our kids. But it's interesting that we always put the onus on the, offend, the one who's first offended. You know, Mallory smacks, and we say, Mallory, you need to ask for forgiveness. Never does it occur to me as a dad, and, I, and I, maybe, maybe we can change now, but never does it occur to me that I should go to Bennett first and say, Bennett, I know Mallory hit you. I want you to forgive her right now. Without her even asking for it. I want you to, to look at your sister and from your heart to say, you know what, Mallory, it's okay. I forgive you already. Even though you didn't even ask me for it. We generally think of forgiveness as something that must be asked for. We tend to think, I'll forgive if they ask for it. If they come and ask for forgiveness, then I'll forgive. But that's not the kind of reconciliation in view in verse 13, is it? Read it carefully. It's not the kind of reconciliation that Paul has in view. Paul says, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive them. Which is to say, if you're offended, or you have something that you find blame in another, if you have a complaint against another person, Paul says, forgive them. Let it go. Give it up. Forgive them before they even ask you to forgive them. Jesus put it in Mark 11, it's on your outline there. Whenever you stand praying, Jesus said, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. People look at that and go, my goodness, I haven't read that verse in a while. Are you meaning to tell me that if I don't unconditionally forgive my brother or sister who's offended me, then God will not forgive me my sins and I might be in danger of eternal judgment? No. That's not what's in view here. What's in view here in this portion of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' discussion of maintaining harmony within relationships. And Jesus says, when you're up praying, when you're standing for the people, when you're praying at home, if you want to be a man or a woman with a clean conscience as you go to the Lord and beseech Him in prayer, you need to be a person who's forgiving those around you. You need to be in harmony with one another before you try and go before God and and ask Him for blessings in your life. He says, you first, Jesus says, you first get in harmony with those around you and then ask for blessings from the Lord. But if you don't, if, if instead you have complaints over here and bitterness over there and you go to God and ask Him for blessing, Jesus says you're, you're not going to receive blessing. You're, you're going to be out of harmony. And God won't forgive you in His relationship with you in the ongoing, as you walk through this life, God will not forgive you your sins if you're not forgiving others theirs. In other words, you won't receive the blessings from the Lord that He wants to give you. He's already forgiven you completely by the cross. All sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, all of them have been wiped out. But as you walk in this day-to-day life, we're still sinning. We're still taking it before the Lord. And He still wants to give us forgiveness. He wants us to be in harmony. And that's what Jesus is speaking to there in Mark 11. He says, be in harmony with your relationship with one another. If you're not, then you're going to be out of harmony with God. doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. 
but it means that your relationship with your heavenly Father will not be in sync. You can't expect Him, you can't expect God to be in wonderful, intimate fellowship with you if you yourself are holding grudges left and right with others. N.T. Wright puts it well. He says, It is utterly inappropriate for one who knows the joy and release of being forgiven, it is inappropriate to refuse to share that blessing with another. It is highly presumptuous, in fact, to refuse to forgive one whom Christ himself has already forgiven. Wright says there, he says, get over it. (laughs) Get over it. Retaining bitterness simply because they haven't asked you for forgiveness, that is unacceptable. Let it go that you might be in harmony with them and with God. Christ died for you without you ever asking Him for it. How much more can you let this offense go? And if they're a believer then we know that Christ has forgiven them. And yet you hold a grudge still? Are you somehow more important than Jesus? That somehow they owe you something more than they owed Him? Such grudges are inappropriate and highly presumptuous. We need to let go. And I ask you just simply now, what are you holding on to? What bitterness are you holding on to? Whether it's with your spouse, your children, a friend, a family member. Paul says, let it go. Jesus says, let it go. That you might get back in harmony with God. Verse 14, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, And be thankful, knowing, knowing just how much Jesus has done for us. Let us also love one another, which is the bond of perfection. Love is a seal, Paul says. And when it's applied, when that seal is applied in relationship with others, its effects are lasting. The bitter heart becomes soft when love is applied. The calloused heart becomes tender when love is applied. Um, there's another, <laughs> I, I, just, I just keep thinking of these, these parenting techniques and, and different methods that are being used these days. This one I, I really like. It's, it's, it's really funny. Um, I see now when, 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 when siblings are not getting along, these parents, they've, they've gone out and they've purchased this very, very, very large t-shirt. A double XL t-shirt. And they call it the get along shirt. The get-along shirt. And they take that double L t-shirt and they take their two kids and they put the double L t-shirt over both of them. And they say, get along. And the kids, that you know, both their heads are through the hole of the double XL shirt. And they have one arm and then the other arm's, you know, to the side. And they're both just kind of in this get-along shirt. I've, I've been reading stories and articles about the get-along shirt. You know, it's uh, 
you know, California would probably call it child protective services. Uh, but you know, beyond that, it, it's amazing how often the parents are remarking that it's working. The kids, initially, when they fight, when they argue, and the parents are trying to, you know, get them in harmony with one another, initially when they put on that shirt, boy, brother and sister do not like that one bit. But within about 60 seconds, they start laughing and giggling because they start falling over and they start realizing that they got to walk and step together. They're attached to the hip. They can't get away from one another. And so they start working in cooperation again. And like, you know, a, a little dog who needs a one word command, when you put those two kids in the get along shirt, eventually they start laughing and are reminded of just how much they love and care for each other. And they start playing well again together. Now, I don't know. We could go into the psychology of the get along shirt and, you know, I'm sure that some have problems with the get along shirt and I'm, I'm not endorsing the get along shirt. However, I will say this. When you, when you put that seal, when you put them together, when you put that Bond of perfection, Paul calls it. That seal of love. When it's applied, when you can't get away from it, when you love someone and you communicate that love to them and they can't get away from it and they've been bitter for years and they're looking at you and they're hearing you give them that love, they don't know what to do with it. And eventually it takes two people who were once at odds and it brings them back together. Just like... The get-along shirt. When you put them together long enough, when you give someone love, when you give them love that's undeserved, that's, uh, that's merciful love, unconditional love, Paul says something wonderful happens. There's a bond of perfection that takes place. There's an easing that takes place in the relationship. There's a relinquishing of rights, a relinquishing of stubbornness, And pretty soon those two people start getting along again. Whether it's two siblings in a get-along shirt or whether it's two adults who have been at odds for decades. Just love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Put on love. Clothe yourself in love, which is like a seal of perfection. Does magnificent things. And verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. The word rule there, it's a great word. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's a command. It means let it be your judge. Let peace, let the peace of God be your judge. Let it be your arbiter. Let everything you do be filtered through the notion of exemplifying the peace of God. Faced with a difficult situation in life, may you ask the Spirit-led question, how can I represent God's peace in this moment? How can I represent God's peace? Be at peace. After all, we're in this together. Paul says we're all one body, the church. We're united in Christ. He loved us. He expended so much of his energies just to be with us. And he continues to expend his devotion and his time 
to renew us daily, hourly, by minute, through His Word and through His Spirit. So let us be thankful, Paul writes, and keep Jesus at the center. We close with verse 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Excuse me, let me read that again. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Paul says, meditate on the teachings of Christ, on the Word of God. Let it dwell in you. Let it reside deep within you. True, true life change starts in the mind, what we meditate on. Philippians 4 tells us what to meditate on. Whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, praiseworthy. Paul says meditate on those things. And when our mind is rightly and regularly attuned to the things of God, then we'll be able as Paul says, then we'll be able, when, when our mind is on the words of Christ, upon His, His Word, then we'll be able to, in all wisdom, teach and admonish one another as we ought to. And then our lips will naturally become filled with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a difference between getting advice and getting wise-rooted spiritual counsel. Anyone can give advice. Anyone can tell you what they think. Anyone. You can get advice from a child. You can get advice from a, a stranger on the street. You can ask the advice of anyone out there, and they can give it to you. But only a person who dwells deep in God's Word can give you wise, godly support and direction. So do not seek those who give shallow advice but rather find some mature follower of Christ who will respond to your questions with a Christ-centered perspective. You say, well, how do I know who has such maturity? Paul says there's one such indicator, actually. I'll tell you that indicator now, he says. He says one such indicator of their maturity in Christ is you can ask the question, are they a grateful singer of God's praise? Read it says that they, these mature, godly counselors are ones who in all wisdom, they teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You say, well, surely Paul doesn't mean that only those who sing can teach and admonish. Nor, nor does he mean that, that our worship to God must be loud and, and noticeable. Surely that's not what he means. But what he does suggest is that the spiritually mature person is one who lifts up praise to God, who you can see it in their life. You can watch it taking place. The mature believer is one who is surrounded and entrenched in the word of Christ and who as they learn more about God, praise instinctually comes to their lips. They're speaking about God's God's wonders in them. They're speaking about God's blessings in their life. About all that they have in Christ. They're a person who lifts up hymns 
and praises and spiritual songs. You say, well, pastor, I can't sing. I can't sing. And I would say it's not about being on tune. It's about being who you're attuned to. You say, well, pastor, I don't like to sing. Well, I didn't like vegetables either when I was young. But as I grew older and more mature, I started to realize the value of vegetables. I started to eat them more and more and more, despite my initial aversion to not liking them. And sure enough, I started acquiring more and more of a taste for vegetables. And today, it's one of the first things I go for in the refrigerator. I'll snack on tomatoes. I'm weird like that. I can't sing is a bad excuse. I don't like to sing is probably an indicator that perhaps you need to try it again and then watch the spiritual benefits that accrue to you. I can't sing is a bad excuse. It's not about being in tune. It's about who you're attuned to. I don't like to sing is probably an indicator that you need to try it again and watch spiritual benefits accrue to your life. Paul's point is, when Jesus' words are deep in you, you won't stay silent. You won't. When When God's word is deep within you, you won't be a person who can stay silent about it. When God's word is your earnest and regular meditation, your lips will naturally speak of and sing his praises. And that doesn't mean you need to be loud and obnoxious about it. The Pharisees were the ones weeping and wailing for all to hear when they prayed on street corners that others might be impressed by their worship. That's not the worship that God wants you to have. He wants your heart. So whether you raise your hands or whether you sit quietly. Paul says, sing. Sing to God. Don't sing to impress others. Sing to Him. Don't sing for the praise of another. Worship Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I want to close again with a a quotation. I've been quoting Bruce a lot. His commentary is wonderful. Bruce writes of verse 17, the Christian, when confronted by a moral issue, may not find any explicit word of Christ relating to its particular details. And what he, I'll, I'll pause right there. What he's, what he's setting up is, look, we're going to go through all sorts of things in life. We're going to go through all sorts of choices and decisions and dilemmas. And you, sometimes you're going to look at the Bible and your pew Bible and you're going you're gonna to be like, I don't know the answer to this one. I, I don't know which way to turn, God. I don't know what, it's not quite clear. I'm still looking for answers. This is Bruce's response. I'll read it again. The Christian, when confronted by a moral issue, may not find any explicit word of Christ relating to its particular details, but the question may be asked, what is the Christian thing to do here? Can I do this? Without compromising my Christian confession. Can I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus whose reputation 
is at stake in the conduct of his known followers. And even then, the right course of action may not be unambiguously clear. But such questions, honestly faced, will commonly provide sure ethical guidance than special regulations may do. It is often easy to get around special regulations, the law. It is less easy to get around so comprehensive a statement of Christian duty as this verse supplies. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We like rules and regulations. We're a society that's built on law. Um, we often you know, like having our, our bullet points, our 1 through 10 that we need to obey and follow, check off the list. Bruce says here, and, and Paul implies in verse 17, that it's no longer about checking off a list of regulations. As we go through life, as we try to honor the Lord, it's not about following law and regulation anymore. Instead, we have a higher a higher course. We have a higher responsibility. And while the special regulations might be easy to circumvent, they might be easy to get around, we might look at law and say, how can I beat that? You can't beat verse 17. Paul writes it comprehensively. He says, whatever you do, whether you're speaking, whether you're acting, in practice, in your mind, with your lips, do it all in the name for the reputation of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. God's reputation, Jesus' reputation, is at stake in how we act, in how we speak. You're His followers. People know you're a Christian. Some of you, they know more than others. But uh, you're out there, your faith is out there. It's known in the workplace, it's known online. Your faith is known um, in your neighborhood, when you come and when you go, Jesus' reputation is at stake in how you live. And He's done so much for you. He never gives up on you. He wants to renew you day by day that you might become the person He's made you to be. And so let us in response let us in response have a response of gratitude. Let us filter our words and actions now through Christ, through His eyes, through His mindset. What will bring God's peace? How can I bring honor to His name? These are the questions that a man or woman must ask if they're to put on the new man. They already have the new man on. By faith in Christ, you are new. But you need to keep that uniform on. You need to suit up each day. One theologian has put it, the religion of the New Testament is grace and the ethical admonition of the New Testament is gratitude. The religion of the New Testament is summed up in grace, the word grace, and the ethical admonitions, what I need to do now in response to that religion is gratitude. I need to live a life that shows gratefulness to God for the grace that I've received. Put on the new man. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be the kind of man or woman who lives up to all the hopes that you have for us. You've created us new by faith in Christ. We are a new person in our spirit, in our being, in the depths of our soul. You look at us and you see Jesus. You don't see our old, sinful, fleshly self. You see your Son because we're new in Him. And yet, God, it's so easy not to feel new, to feel old, actually, to feel like we're giving in again to temptation. Lord, so we need to be reminded that you are at work in us daily. You are daily renewing us. And you're daily admonishing us to put on, to suit up those clothes, that uniform that you already know we're bound and determined to wear. That we're destined to wear. Tender mercies, kindness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, love, peace, all these things, God. We're destined for these things in our future. Help us to put the uniform on now. Help us to heed your word, to become more like you, to put on the new man. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.